Welcome back to Orbitz Consulting. My name is Manal Zainuddin, Global Education Consultant and founder of Orbitz Development Code, an approach for conscious learning and being. This podcast highlights education communities from macro and micro angles, leadership, learning, personal and professional growth across multiple disciplines. Education is holistic and as vast and infinite as the cosmos. As we bring stories, interviews, talks, projects from around this globe, I extend Plutarch's famous quote that I had posted in uh, the schools I have worked in. The mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be kindled. Our guest today is Stuart Chambers. Stuart is an environmentalist, World Peace Ambassador at World Peace Tracts, founder of Project Our World, executive producer at Phoenix Film DXB, co-founder Creatology Corporation and Invent School Canada. Stuart, I am not only joyful today, but also honored to have you here. I need to edit that title at some point, but anyway, I'm very happy to be here. With all the roles that you have been playing, actually, to serve humanity and our world, it would be better if you tell us about the beginning of your career journey. I would say it started early in life, but then I suppose, like many people, your priorities shift and you forget about things. And I was pitching a big film for um, a government company, flying around the world, actually flying almost twice around the world and tell the stories of people who had suffered incredible adversity and the aid that was being brought to them. And we needed to film for almost a week. And we found the people and they came to us and they stepped up and they told us their story. Four countries in Lebanon, in Banda Aceh, in Pakistan, in the Kashmir Mountains. And, and to see the way these people have faith and hope and this incredible belief in a better future, I think inspires everybody to want to do more. So I've been on a mission ever since to try and tell more human stories. But as a producer, it doesn't always work the way you want, but you move forward. You find people who are willing to, to tell these stories with you because not everybody wants to tell them, which is a shame. Right. But for me, it's important. For me, losing this big budget film that I'd worked so hard to get was repaid a million times by being given the opportunity to tell the stories. I mean, the fisherman in Banda Arche had been out on the sea with his brother the night before and they knew something was horribly wrong. And at one point when the tsunami hit, he believed he'd only saved his youngest son. He believed his wife and eldest son were lost. He didn't find them three days. Four years after the event, they were still going every single night looking for one piece of, and they couldn't find it. Oh and God, yeah. his wife lost literally every single of her own family from her brothers and sisters, grandparents. And yet all they brought to us was good survival and what people had done to help them and what was being done to help them. So it's a pleasure to be a part of something that brings more good to this world. 
Yes, absolutely. And I think these are eye-opening experiences. You are sharing the common factor of, of humanity. And this is what I always like to speak about, the oneness. This is something that we all share. We all belong to different cultures, but we share the same sentiments and the same pains and the same moments of joy. So what you're doing is really blissful. Stuart, thank you so much. The experience we need to hear from you today is about those human stories and much more about the world and the environment. And this episode comes to address environmental concerns in alignment with the climate change conference of the parties, the COP26, that took place in Glasgow. At the beginning of this month, there was a four-minute film named Earth to COP. Uh, it was released, and these phrases about our planet best capture the uh, in the description, and I will quote here, a planet enraged, disasters that have become more frequent and more ferocious, fires, floods, storms, droughts. End quote. So, Stuart, as an environmentalist, what are your views of the current global environmental crisis? I'm the eternal optimist, Manal, but I think when a politician like Boris Johnson stands up and says the clock is ticking and it's one minute to midnight, mm -hmm. you have to go back in history and realize this has been going on a long time. You know, 1979, we had the world's first climate conference. 1988, we had the UN form the, the panel on climate change. 1997, we had the Kyoto Protocol adopted if I remember rightly, 37 industrial nations. And so it goes on to 2005 when Kyoto ratified 141 nations and US and Russia were not on board. And since 1998, you've had the oil and gas industry with very clever PR agents telling everybody this is fine, nothing's going wrong. So I think you have to kind of break it down in my mind. I was always brought up or told by my father to worry about, not to worry about anything I couldn't do anything about, but to worry if I could be doing more and wasn't doing enough. That's true. So if you break that down, it is worrying, very worrying that people are ignoring the planet's needs and putting profit and pollution and pillaging of the Earth's resources before anything else, because it's ultimately one board of shareholders that rules the world and they pay a lot of money to governments and politicians to keep that status quo the way they want it. So right. can we rely on politicians? I don't think so. Until maybe we have a lot more female politicians who are leading the world. We still have play, people playing politics. We still have people coming to conferences, talking a lot, making big promises. And yet I'm not sure if you could put together an optimistic list of what was done. If you look at COP26, there's a lot of people working there who bring an incredible amount of good and positivity and sustainability and everything the world needs to adopt. And yet politicians stay as they are. I don't know how much you can change. So then you look at the other end and say, fine, politicians are monitoring the pulse of the people and the people are definitely rising and talking about climate change and what needs to be done. And at COP26, you had activists, business leaders, indigenous representatives, celebrities, scientists, and people from all walks of life, whether they were grandfathers or grandmothers or mothers or children, who would like to be inspired by the future. Right. I mean, on one of the questions you asked me, technology, how good is, is technology? And I feel it's vitally important in terms of energy, 
in terms of transport, in terms of new and innovative ways that we move forward. I mean, what I found it quite strange when I was at Expo 2020 because the Terra Pavilion is completely sustainable, 100%. And nobody's talking about that so much. An absolutely amazing building that just goes to prove that if you have the mindset to do something the way it needs to be done, we have the money, we have the technology, so it all boils down to the political will. And I think the political will can be changed by positive people, if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. We did quite a lot of research. What good possible good could it do to help people believe in sustainability? That question came from one of the banks, a leading bank. And the bank on a global scale is, is supporting the United Nations and the SDGs and making a big noise about it. But on a local level, I found it strange they were questioning me. So I asked the guy the question in reverse and said, so tell me, you're a modern banking institution who continues to invest in fossil fuels. Can I ask mm -hmm. you the same question? What possible good could a modern bank investing in fossil fuels bring to the sustainable table today? And the guy apologized and said, I thought you wanted funding. I said, no, I didn't want funding. I just wanted an answer to a question. You chose to be rude. I choose to reply. Oh. And there was an awful lot of very nasty comments saying, Stuart, we thought you were better than this. Stuart, you do realize that this is a fad and it will go away. But I've been like that all my life. You know, if I, I like to follow things to the end. And the end resulted in a a meeting with a senior government official. And I said, we're a sustainable flag bearing country. And yet I've got all these people in industry and in the private sector that are making all these quite radical, you know, they're sitting in pessimism and denial. That's changed, Manal. But the one thing that, that didn't change along the way was I found a lot of people that had really good sustainable stories to tell didn't want to put their hands up too high for fear I believe of a negative media reaction so I'm now really happy when I see a lot of people marching to Glasgow or going by horseback or going by train or <laughs> however they got there or walking in some cases because it proves there's a movement of people out there that is far bigger than we've ever had before that actually cares to do something positive about this. Yes. And people say to me, but Stuart, you can't change the world. I said, no, well, in a way, I'm not trying to change the world, but I can change the way I live my life in the world around me. I can sow seeds of sustainability, good and kindness in the world around me, in the community around me, in the street I live in. And I believe those small actions multiplied by a lot of people bring change. I mean, the UK government didn't want to feed kids at Christmas, needy kids at Christmas. Marcus Rashford, as a footballer who doesn't have to care, but cared, got the government to do a U-turn. A couple of weeks ago, 500 Tory MPs voted to allow raw, untreated sewage to mm -hmm. flow into our rivers and waterways. And then the people rise up and say, this is wrong. And you sit there and you think, so what do these right-wing politicians think when they say, yes, it's fine to have raw sewage floating in our water, knowing full well that 90% of that water flows into the sea? Yes. So I think as humanity, there are humans that could be doing a lot more. So, But I think as humans, we can all be doing a lot more. Yes, and that's the powerful message we are sharing today. 
you yeah. know, in the COP summit, uh, world leaders came together and it was a critical call to action towards the goals of the Paris Agreement and the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And we have seen considerable pro progress with businesses like you just mentioned and investors oh. and regions and cities. They have joined the what they call the race to resilience and the other risk-informed early action partnership and so on. But like you ju just mentioned as well, there were also those um, those issues, and I say they are those gloomy questions about the funding allocations as, as well, indigenous rights violations, fossil fuels intensives, and climate capitalism, and so much. Technology can help, and people can help as well. But one of the um, quotations that I read by Alice Hill, she is the Senior Fellow for Energy and Environment, Council on Foreign Affairs. Uh, she talks about adaptation and resilience, and I quote what she mentions. Scenario planning has been very valuable here because it forces us to exercise our imaginations in new ways. It's really hard for us to think through what does it look like with that level of heat in the future. Most failure points in history involve a failure of imagination. So here there is a major question, and this podcast is also main, mainly about education. As we build communities of the future, what do you think the role of schools and educational systems are when it comes to environmental uh, challenges? I think the roles of educators, young people, parents, teachers, is absolutely key. Let me give you an example. My mm. daughter's 13, and she's oh, very much driven by uh, a points, you know, achievement. So I have to achieve this point, and then I'm successful. And then she said to me one day, she said, you know, I was asked a question on an exam that I've never been educated about. And I said, okay, what was the question? She said, well, if I'm living on a hill mm -hmm. by a river and I want to be sustainable, what would be the best thing for me to, to purchase? I'll get these figures wrong, but it will give you an indication. A wind machine costing probably about $17,000, a water kind of electrical generator using the flow of the water, which cost about 5,000. And there was something else, I can't remember what. She said, I had no ideas, but I thought if I'm on the top of a hill, wind is going to be more constant than water so did i get it right she said i don't know because i haven't got the papers back and i wasn't taught wow. what i should be looking for and i'm thinking this is something fundamentally wrong you know i'm not that old but we were taught something called rural studies which was all about the joy of growing food and being out in a garden and experiencing the big outdoors and we went on trips all over the place to farms i found I learned more than being challenged to get the highest score in an exam. Yes, yes. So I, I, I genuinely feel the way we teach children needs to fundamentally change because whichever aspect of life you go into from a young child to, a, to college to university, everything that we do moving forward has the potential to affect the food we eat, the air we breathe, the water we rely on, safety of our homes, the, the robustness of our economies, security of our borders. Everyone who calls this planet home has a part to play. Right. So, you know, sow some seeds of kindness, sow some seeds of goodness, and they will grow. But the, the seed you plant today doesn't always reap fruit until you're moving forward, but it doesn't mean expect the politicians to do it for you because I was thinking before I came on this conversation, I can't expect a politician to do for me and see it through. Right. But I can 
encourage and engage with and try to help educate a group of human beings moving forward. Four years ago, sitting in the, the Cantina Expo with the head of sustainability, she said to me, Stuart, that the way forward is what you touched on before, it's human stories. And we planned quite a few films, all based about individuals who were making a difference. That didn't go ahead because Expo, because of COVID and Expo was postponed. But I was really grateful that they called me back in and we found three stunning, I mean, absolutely stunning individual stories to tell after a lot of research and with an incredibly talented Emirati female director, who was the first female director led by the name of Naira Hadja. Mm -hmm. We found a man called Sheikh Salim Al-Qasimi, who is clearly wealthy in his own right, and yet had a moment in his life when he suddenly realized that the power of a very often misunderstood preacher holds a very vital key to the future of the planet. Please. So True. not only is he rallying around every single thing he can possibly do to protect, to nurture, to, to grow, to educate, to teach children about the importance of bees. He's also signed a contract with Emirates Environmental Agency and a wonderful lady by the name of Habib al-Marashi who basically, if you carry, if you um, gather a certain amount, whether you're a, a company or whether you're an individual of waste that they can recycle, they will donate a cedar tree for you to plant in Sheikh Salim's bee reserve. The bee reserve is oh, yeah. currently 8,000 cedar trees. They've only been planting for three years, and he would like anywhere between 40,000 and 100,000 trees. The area where they're planting is close to Ras al-Khaimah, so it's surrounded by mountains, not that high, but bees don't travel over mountains. So they will stay in the area. And in that sense, using the hives they're supposed to use, they will become probably the most, the first real, true organic bee reserve in the region. But you think he doesn't have to do this. And yet it's not only what he's doing now, he's, he's investing in future generations in 10 years time. We found a, a second man by the name of Phil Dunn. Phil was, I think if I get this correctly, he was the lead landscape architect on Sustainable City. And now he works at, uh, at Terra, which is the Sustainable Pavilion at Expo. And at the age of 50, Having done so much, brought so much sustainability into his working and his private life, he then decided he wanted to launch something called the Sustainable Human. Well done and grow in the gardens where he lives at Sustainable City. I personally knew you from a professional platform through a project that you call Project Our World. And it's a network of over 3,000 followers. And honestly, I was fascinated from the beginning with this initiative because it is very simple, yet it is uh, very meaningful and, and profound. And you describe it in a very nice way. And I quote, a network of goodness uh, to recognize humanity and respect the dignity of our wonderful planet. I end your quote. So what is Project Our World and how was this idea initiated? Project Our World was really as a platform 
for people who wanted to have a voice to encourage more people to the world. In a way, it's grown in a slightly different direction because, as you know, we, we support every single one of the SDGs. Right. Uh, we don't just pick and choose what suits us. But a lot of people that I know that are doing a lot of sustainable good and really remarkable sustainable good, we found didn't really want to put their hand up. And all we wanted to do was to shine some sustainable, some good, positive media light on sustainable achievement. I think you have to say to yourself, okay, you know, changing the world is a big deal and look at what you can change in the world around you. I sat down in 2018 and thought, how can I personally make a difference that brings people together because this is an issue that affects every living person on this planet. And I think if you can do the same, as I said before, it doesn't need to be a big, expensive, time-consuming, you don't need to change your garden, you could grow your own herbs, you could save water, save electricity. There are so many things that you can personally become involved in. But most of all, bring the children that are in your life and around your life and let them help you and support you and guide you. Because after all, what we do today resonates on future generations. One of the most interesting books that I have read, written by the sustainable design instructor Lloyd Alter, the book is titled Living the 1.5 Degree Lifestyle, Why Individual Climate Action Matters More Than Ever. And this explains the daily carbon emissions tracking and how to live this 1.5 degree lifestyle. And I think we as parents and families, we have this role. We can help cutting out our individual carbon footprints as much as we can. So when you as a film producer and we as educators, we are all speaking about all these matters, then parents at least will start paying attention. So this is a great point to consider today. The Road to Fulfillment, which was a film that we were basically asked by Expo to dispel the myth that Dubai is not a sustainable place. There are a lot of individuals who are living extremely sustainable lives. So we didn't want to um, produce a documentary that had facts and figures because that tends to turn people off. We wanted to find emotionally invested individuals who were making a difference in their own way. And we found a man who was bees. We found a man who was landscape architects on Sustainable City. Uh, which was built to prove that the concept of sustainable living could work, uh, and who's now the one of the senior managers at the Expo Terra Pavilion, who is moving onto a project whereby he's growing vegetables in seawater. And it's not only seawater, it's uh, the wastewater that comes out of desalination plants, which is then treated in t- to become a kind of bracken water. So it's not only is he growing vegetables in salt water? He's also saving a lot of pollution from going into the ocean. And the final person we, the story we told was of a lady called Nora Al Belushi, who works with um, Environment Agency Abu Dhabi. She's a marine biologist who specializes in fisheries and dolphins and who is currently laying acoustic devices so they can track and listen to dolphins, which will help them to have a better understanding of how they can keep these environmental places for dolphins to live and continue with 
development so that nature retains its place in the world. I can imagine I how fascinating this film will be. I can't wait to watch it with uh, with all the other viewers. You shared a few uh, videos with me and one of them, The Unseen Ocean from Defiant Pioneers. I personally loved it because it relates to a personal experience of me and my family living in a, in a city and yearning to live in nature and the countryside. And I remember a, a very inspirational idea that was passed through the, the Unseen Ocean when it says one can't truly protect something without loving it. And and this is true, actually. My, my daughter participated in Finland Dubai Contest for Sustainability last year, and she shared a very significant similar message, which, which is the importance of loving and caring, not just only planning. And I called it uh, having the white contracts, not only green contracts. And this is an episode five of the same podcast. And I think oh. this brings us both to the same point. We're combining both the head and the heart to protect our planet. And, you know, this is a part of my approach, which is conscious learning and being. And this is all part of conscious education that, that we all aspire to see more in schools. So I would like to thank you, Stuart Chambers, for being with me today, sharing all this incredible voice. I think what you just touched on, mainly the role of people and the role of those individuals who we can call like invisible heroes, is so important. So it is such a joy and honor for me, Stuart. Likewise. One last thing in the film, The Unseen Ocean, one of the things that drove me forward was where the teacher says, if we can change the behavior of future generations, then we have hope. Yes. And hope is what keeps people alive and what keeps yes. our planet on. Yes. Very much so. Anyway, it's a real pleasure. I invite our audience to check the links of Project Our World and Stuart Chambers Films. Uh, and I will keep this in the description. Uh, coming to the end of this episode and our open-ended question, the question for all of us to ponder. And I would, with great delight, leave this question to Stuart. Stuart? I think if you could sit down and, and agree with yourself that there would be just one thing that you would do that would have impact on your life and could be measured going forward, then I think you have to agree what is the one thing that you would like to do, whether it's whatever it is. I think it's very personal. From being on Project Our World, we when COVID struck, we asked people to, to make a pledge and, and share their story. And the difference coming back from people, from people that said, okay, I'm donating $10 a month to my favorite charity, to another lady who said, I, I, I don't have money, but I'm going to spend a huge writing to my MPs, to people that said they wanted to start shifting money that they had otherwise just given to a charity and they wanted to give it to a charity that they knew believed in the same values that they did. From people who wanted to write to their MPs continually about things that should and could be changed in the, the world, to people who just decided to grow their own herbs on their windowsill rather than buy them from the supermarket so they didn't have to throw the plastic away. It's from the small to the small to the big to the, that every single one of those pledges had meaning to the people that made it.